0: You don't have to be around church long to hear the saying, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. I'm sure you've heard that before. And that can be contextualized to to make some good sense and offer a good warning. But in the Bible, what's fascinating is it usually draws us back to another reality, which is that you can be so earthly-minded that you're no heavenly good. Or that you're so earthly-minded, you're actually no earthly good. So we need to make sure that we're thinking about things in the light of the way that Scripture calls us to. And if you're so earthly-minded that you're no good for others, it's even more so true for church leaders. And uh, you know that over the last couple of decades, we've seen a number of famous Christian leaders who have fallen, and we've been reminded that human leaders, they may fail us. Jesus never will, but human leaders do, and they will. And, and, And as we think about that, we know that there have been a number of folks who have drawn attention to that so I'm reminded for instance of a writer Sinclair Lewis who in 1927 he wrote this fictional attack against fundamentalist preachers and so he comes he came up with a a famous character he named Elmer Gantry and this character was the main character of the book he was an up-and-coming preacher who preaches the fundamentals of the faith and of a stern moral self-control while simultaneously living a self-indulgent life. He's ambitious, greedy, he is uh, a drunkard, a womanizer, and a complete hypocrite. And the whole book is kind of uh, just drawing the light, putting a light on the nature of this preacher. Uh, One scene from the book reveals Gantry's ignorance of spiritual things, coupled with that insatiable appetite for sin. Uh, Lewis writes, Elmer Gantry never knew who sent him 30 dimes. He received this anonymous gift of 30 dimes that were wrapped in a tract about living a holy life. And he says, I never knew who, he says he never knew who sent that to him, those 30 dimes wrapped in a tract about holiness. Nor why, but he found the sentiments in the tract useful in his sermon. And the 30 dimes he spent for lovely photographs of burlesque ladies. Now, what were the 30 dimes? Well, if you've read the Bible, you have any knowledge of spiritual things, you know They represent the 30 pieces of silver that that Judas sold Jesus out for. And the track about holiness should have awakened him to his sinful life, that others saw it. But instead, he thought it made for good preaching material, given that he had no spiritual life himself. Of course, reality created this fiction. In fact, the writer himself, Lewis, wrote into his work a character, Sharon Falconer, who was a thinly veneered character that represent Amy Simple McPherson who had famously fallen to sin and was a charismatic Pentecostal preacher in Hollywood of his day. Uh, This happened as he was writing this book and he said well I'm just gonna write in this real-world experience that I've had and that we've had. The most famous evangelist of the day when this work came out, Elmer Gantry, Billy Sunday, he demanded that this book should be banned and that lewis should be thrown in jail now some people actually did ban the book but we can't ban the apostle peter who warns his and future generations of false teachers like gantry now we're back and i remember this series in second 2 peter 2 10 to verse 16. and peter tells us that true faith actually unites us to the morally excellent christ who makes us more and more like him until Jesus returns on the last day. Now, it's clear that false teachers in this mostly Gentile group of churches that are in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, that's modern day Turkey, uh, they're teaching at least a couple of things. Uh, One is that Jesus is not coming back. And second, it doesn't matter how you live. Well, today we find these false teachers, they actually saw themselves as being pretty great. In fact, the way that they are living makes them seem to think as though they are higher than some angels, way above the rules. But they look like brute beasts destined for destruction on the last day, according to Peter. Now, our big idea, if you're taking notes, is this. It's that false teachers are so earthly-minded, they're not heavenly or earthly good. False teachers are so earthly-minded, they're not heavenly or earthly good either, I'll see this in a number of ways. The the first appears in, in verses 10 to 11, where we find the false teachers are boldly arrogant. They're boldly arrogant. You can't miss how arrogant these teachers are as you look at these first verses. Notice in the second half of verse 10, how it says they are described. It says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, that's a little confusing, so we need to unpack it a little bit. Uh, But bold and willful is pretty clear. It's it's roughly the same thing, these two words, bold and willful. Uh, It could be understood, and a lot of authors do, a lot of commentators do, as a, a kind of doubling down, saying that they are boldly arrogant. They are really arrogant guys. Now, both words carry this idea of, claiming a rank above oneself. You see yourself as higher than what you are. Now, as you notice, they show pretty clearly that their hubris is apparent in this fact. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, who are these glorious ones? Well, some take this to speak of human church leaders or civil leaders. But verse 11 seems to say that these glorious ones are greater than the angels who are greater than, uh, who will not blaspheme this group, whoever they are. Now, most commentators, as they look at these, these glorious ones, are likely right, calling them fallen angels. So I take it that these are Fallen angels, these glorious ones that are not to be blasphemed. See, glorious, it seems, I know, a strange word to, to use to describe a demon, but I think it's pointing to their origin, that these are heavenly creatures. That's their beginning. That's how the Lord made them. And, and also Jude 9 seems to support this idea where it says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Jude seems to give the same kind of idea that Peter does. Uh, The good angel Michael did not slander or blaspheme against the devil, who is the head of fallen angels. Peter here, though, he seems to be speaking more generally about how good angels don't slander fallen angels. See, the false teachers seem to slander demons in a way even Michael, the archangel, would not. Now, what did they say specifically? Well, maybe they denied a final judgment of demons or a spiritual world at all, which would mean that they don't face a judgment either. Uh, Maybe um, it's that Richard Bauckham's right when he says that the teachers ridiculed the notion that their sins would make them a prey for evil angels. In other words, we can live it up in sin and we are not vulnerable to demonic activity. Of course, a few things are clear here. First, did you notice that angels are greater in might and power than demons? That's good news, right? Of course, Jesus is more powerful than them all. And second, there is some danger in view from demons for those who are engaging in sin. Now, this is not like new to the New Testament, right? If you read Ephesians 6, It says that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and heavenly places. Language speaking of spiritual beings, fallen angels that we are at war with. Believers believe, we believe that there is a spiritual world out there that actually is engaging us, whether or not we recognize it. Just because you don't believe, just because you don't believe, hear me, in demons and angels does not mean that they do not exist. Just because you don't believe in the unseen God does not mean that he does not exist. Any more than just because you can't see gravity, it does not exist. These are realities about the world that we live in. And so here we see that it is clear that Paul is warning about if you are living it up in sin, don't think that you are not more vulnerable. It's not like there's not some kind of just consequence to not being led by the Holy Spirit, but instead doing the works of the flesh. Now this seems to warn that these false teachers have given themselves over to sin and they have become vulnerable to evil forces. But third, it's clear here that these false teachers are boldly arrogant, viewing themselves as high as heaven, right? Pride is in full view here. Now don't miss this. God opposes the proud. That's throughout the whole canvas of the scriptures. God is against the proud. In fact, uh, we find a great example in Isaiah where God has prophesied the destruction of the mighty nation of Assyria. I mean, just think about the, the great world power of the day who is mowing down nation after nation. It seems none can push back Assyria. But in this text, Isaiah envisions them as this tall tree with branches who strikes fear and awe in the, the hearts of the nations. Have you, have you ever been to the redwood forest and looked at a, a redwood tree? Anybody ever done that before? Have you seen how tall these guys are? Have you ever stood at the base and just started to look up at the, the top and tried to see the top of one of these trees? Have you ever experienced where you start to almost get dizzy trying to like understand how, how high that tree is, how much work and how much time it took for it to get there? It's exactly the kind of image we find in Isaiah, speaking of Assyria. Look at what they have done. Look at who they are. Does it not just make you dizzy when you look at them? See, a little power can make us feel pretty self-sufficient, can't it? Pretty great. Have y'all experienced this? I experience it all the time. Just a little bit of success. A little bit of success makes us feel like we cannot be defeated, A little bit of defeat makes us feel like we can't win. A new love interest who returns affection makes us wondering, you know, I wonder if she or he is good enough for me. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy, a pretty good girl. Or a little trophy in baseball. A little trophy in baseball, and all of a sudden we're dreaming about playing for the Diamondbacks. A little bit of a raise can make us want to buy more of a house than what we can afford. A little bit of savings makes us think that we are safe, insulated. Even one decent sermon can make us feel like we are above our station as creatures created by God from dust. And in Isaiah 10, no one could protect you from Assyria. And their pride rose to the heavens. And yet in Isaiah ten thirty-three to 34 God eyes the pride of the great tree Assyria intimidating His people and the nations. And God comes in and what does He picture it as? the great lumberjack with a sharp axe. And he comes and he cuts them down to size. He swings his axe with terrifying power and lops off the bows and promises to bring down the lofty in a moment. Think about how many years it took them to grow into that great tree. And God in a moment drops them like they're hot. It's the power of God. And these teachers are worse than Assyria. Do you see it? They're they're not just working up from the earth towards heaven. No, they see themselves as over the angels, these demons. They look like they stand above them. These angels, these beings that dwelt in the very heaven surrounding God. I mean, that's pretty boldly arrogant. And these false teachers of Peter's day are not looking... To heaven, where Jesus is seated next to the Father, and from which he will return to judge the living and the dead, they are arrogant and numb to spiritual things. Just listen close. I think Charles Spurgeon got it right when he was speaking of pride, and he said this. These are words for me and other preachers, but for all of us. He says there are some weeds that will grow anywhere, and one of them is pride. Pride will grow on a rock as well as in a garden. Pride will grow in the heart of a shoeblack as well as in the heart of an alderman. Pride will grow in the heart of a servant girl and is equally as well in the heart of her mistress. And pride will grow in the pulpit. It is a weed that is dreadfully rampant. It needs cutting down every week or else we should stand up to our knees in it. See, this pulpit is a shocking bad soil for pride. These false preachers and teachers, they did not tremble before spiritual beings. The pride grew and grew to the heavens. That's some tall weeds. See, they were strikingly proud, slandering the demons. They saw themselves as greater than angels. Now, the irony, the great irony here is they actually look, according to Peter, like brute beast. They want to rise to the heavens, but he said, you're actually lower than humans. You're looking like animals right now. Notice 2nd, in verses 12 to 13, 13. They look like the lowly beast destined for the last day of judgment. We see that in verses 12 to 13. Now, notice here that he is connecting the nature of the animals with their destiny. Here's what he says. Look with me there again in verse 12. He says this He says, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for the wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, we'll look more there in a minute, but these false teachers, they are already lower than they know. And they don't know how low they can go. See, Peter says these false teachers look like brute beasts today. They are irrational. They are led by fleshly desires. their wants. Whatever it is that they want is what drives their decisions. And they are, he says, destined for destruction. Now that might look like a strange picture, but he's actually picking up on a common theme and quote that we find in the ancients about animals. And he's comparing this quote to these false teachers. Uh, they used to say that animals were born to be caught and destroyed. Just the nature and, and future of animals. But when it says they will be destroyed in their destruction, right after that, it most likely means that these false teachers will be destroyed in the coming destruction of the demons on the last day. Now, Peter understands that these false teachers have received their just desserts in verse 13. In other words, it's not unjust judgment that they look forward to. He, he says there, look, suffering wrong, they are suffering it as the wage for the wrongdoings. And what is this wage for the wrongdoings? Well, the, the picture I think is a, a kind of picture of an eschatological lex talionis. And you're like, okay, you just lost me. But what I mean is, is he's saying, I'm looking to the last day and the destruction that we've been talking about. And as I'm looking at that, I'm looking at the judgment that's coming, and I want you to know that what they receive is what they deserve. It is just. God is just in it. And I think he's going to explain why in just a minute, but for now, he is saying God is always just. They will receive a punishment equal to the crime. No more, no less. See, false teachers face the eternal wrath of God along with the demons as God's just punishment. But the great irony is their arrogance, their self-sufficiency, their pursuit of the pleasures of this world left them look, looking more like unspiritual brute beasts. Now, maybe these teachers seem to be winning at life, and maybe they look in this moment like they are more than they are more than, uh, than doing well, that they're winning, that God is in some ways accepting their lifestyle. They appeal to more non-Christians. It seems like their spirituality is more accepted. Maybe because it's difficult to tell the difference between the false teachers and the world around them. Maybe the weak are in danger of interpreting God's patience as acceptance, accepting their life and their doctrine. But God says these false teachers look more like animals than humans. See, God has created us, according to Genesis one and two, male and female, as the pinnacle of his good creation. God created humans uniquely to worship him and to make him known. God created you and me to glorify him forever, to enjoy him forever. See, we, made, we've made, we are made for more than earthly pleasures, which are but beams of light that are really intended to draw us back to the radiant source, which is God's glory himself. Every good gift is another beam that's breaking into creation, declaring the glory of God. And if you worship the beam, and you miss the beam caster, then you've missed the point of it all. See, God has made us for Himself. Our creating and redeeming God enthroned, is enthroned high above the angels in heaven, calling us to Himself. See, submission to God as your creator actually frees you up to exercise a kind of dominion that is fruitful in Genesis 1. That is what he has made you for. He has made you for dominion. And seeking to live for something else is called slavery in the Bible. See, God has made us for more. Sin actually subjugates us to forces that look to kill, steal, and destroy us. Now, animals are glorious. That's why we go to the zoo, Right? We like to look at animals. But they're not as glorious as humans. I mean, don't get me wrong, a lion's pretty amazing. It's beautiful, their roar is terrifyingly power. It's amazing that God has created a creature like a lion. But they have never composed music. They have never drawn a picture. They have never written a ballad about love. And they don't have eternal souls like every human ever created. Now, you might be thinking like, I don't know, I mean, it seems like animals are pretty glorious. My dog, I'm leaving some of my money to. And maybe you read that article recently in the BBC about how pigs can play video games if you give them food as a reward. My kids do that. I mean, you know, you don't even need food. Sometimes they'll skip food for days on end if they can just have video games. But even animals will perform to get rewards on Earth. Do you see that? Even animals. You can train a, a pig to play video games if you just give them some food. We've been made for so much more than that. See, Jesus came to direct a fallen humanity's gaze out of the spiritual grave towards heaven where God is. Jesus called his disciples to store up treasures in heaven in Matthew 6. And Paul calls us to set our minds on things above and not here on earth in Colossians 3.2. That doesn't mean that we don't provide for our families. Paul tells Timothy, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith as worse than an unbeliever. Believers provide for their people. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, they need to work with their hands and not to be dependent on anyone. See, Paul, he says, I knew how to be content in times of plenty, and times of want, which describes the full range of Christian experiences. I bet both of those are happening right now, even amongst us. But this speaks of the heart motivation of the false teachers. It's not really how much is in their wallet, but it's how much of their wallet is in their hearts. And those who do works of the flesh rather than producing fruits of the Spirit, see, we trust in God for earthly things. We don't trust in earthly things. We hope in God for our future. This is not our future. But catch what Peter says here. There's a kind of self-destructive nature that's natural to sin, hear me, that causes you to collapse in on yourself. Do you see it? You are destroyed in the destruction that you have created. There's an image here, I I think, of the way that sin comes with a kind of self-destructive nature that causes it to collapse in on itself and destroys both you and those around you. It reminds me a little bit of one of those demolitions of a large building where they have strategically placed explosives. If you watch these online, these are amazing. Like these buildings that take forever to to create, and then they, they film like... Uh, Maybe a bunch of silos, one to the other, and then like they start just like the explosions and they all just fall down almost in a matter of minutes. There's something striking about watching a tall building leveled in seconds. But what's really going on in those experiences, It, it looks like it's just like chaotic explosions, but if you look at it and if you study what's going on, it's actually not explosions but implosions because the explosives are laid strategically around certain foundations within the building. Such that the building is exploding outward. Isn't, it's not exploding outward uncontrollably, but imploding, pulling the building in on top of itself. But what do these boldly arrogant brutes destined for destruction look like? They look like those who are living in sin. And they are destined for destruction, but they are also collapsing in on themselves and drawing others with them into death. Now, verses 13 to 14 give us a snapshot of the many ways these boldly arrogant brutes are showing themselves. Now, notice third, six characteristics of a false teacher. We see six characteristics that he he sort of goes through really quickly. Now, this isn't all the things that would describe a false teacher. And not every one of these things will be present in every false teacher, but it gives color to the snapshot that he's trying to, to provide us with. Notice what he says. In in the second half of 13, he says this They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Now, notice how Peter quickly rattles off these six descriptions of a false teacher. First, he says they're shameless. Did you notice that? They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now the word for pleasure here, it's it's a a common word you're probably familiar with. Hedon, which is the word that we get hedonist from. That's someone that is living for earthly pleasure. Pleasure's not bad, but uh, even the Greeks understood that if you were living for pleasure, uh, they called it one of their four deadly sins. So you, you, you can't live a successful life living for pleasure all day, every day. Now sin is often pictured by darkness in the Bible. Because people usually practice sin in the dark. There's a sense in which they want to hide their works, hide their deeds, because it hides them from the shame of it all. Not just from God, but from others. But catch this, you know that you are not in a good place. Are you hearing me? You know you're not in a good place if you are hiding your sin in the dark. You catch that? If you're like hiding in a room, Alone from others, sinning, not in a good place. Catch this though, you're in a worse place if you don't know that you're in a bad place as you revel in your sin in the light of day. There's a kind of growing sort of sense of hardening that's going on if that's where you're at. See, this envisions here, I think, a kind of hardened conscience or heart that they no longer feel guilt or shame over their blatant sins. We need to realize and recognize, I think, that there's a warning here. We we need to make sure that we are not giving space to sin in our lives, that we're putting it to death, because if we give sin an inch, it will try to take our lives. But notice also, their shame infects the community in verse 13. They are blots and blemishes on the community. Now, this reminds us of the blemishes that would have rendered in Leviticus a sacrifice as being unworthy or a priest as being unable to to serve. But in 3.14, as Peter ends this letter, he tells Christians as they are awaiting the return of Christ to be found by him without spot or blemish. Same words. And so here, these false teachers are not ready for Jesus to come back. They're not ready. It's not going to be a good day. Notice, they are actually reveling again, but here in their deceptions, while they feast with you. Now, the word for love feast looks a lot like the word for deceptions. And Jude mentions love feast in a similar context, speaking of that meal that they would have had along with communion. Some think that, as they were copying this text that they got it wrong because the words look so similar. But I think that Peter, along with others who have said this, meant deception, not love feast. See, Peter sees the false teachers as deceptive. They're functional hedonists while participating in the love feast enjoyed by the church prior to communion. That meal where we celebrate the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for us in the flesh, because we are sinners in the flesh. It's a meal that looks forward to the return of Christ, to judge, the living and the dead. That's why whenever Paul talks about communion in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, do this so often as you do it in remembrance of me until Jesus comes back. See, we don't know for sure exactly what was going on in the way that they were sinning. Uh, Jude 12 speaks in a similar context of shepherds who feed only themselves. Maybe these false teachers were practicing gluttony, drunkenness, more probably. We don't know for sure. But they clearly are not laying down their lives for the sheep as Christ did. They clearly are not seeking to live morally upright lives as Jesus did. They clearly don't look for Jesus' return from heaven with the just judgment. They're not ready. And it's also affecting others. But notice third, uh, here, their hunger for sin is insatiable. Did you see him use that language? Uh, This verse says they have eyes full of an adulteress. The language is really strong here. Uh, He's basically saying that these false teachers, as they are looking, they only, when they see women, see people that they can uh, potentially have adultery with. It's only an adulteress in their eyes. Uh, Greeks had a uh, a famous saying Of shameless men, and it says that they didn't have pupils in their eyes or maidens, they only had adulteresses or harlots. Well, how different is this from Job, who is in his dark moments, and he's saying, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman? I mean, how much is this like Joseph, who took up his cloak and ran to maintain his purity? See, I think this picks up on the sexual nature of their sin, but also notice how it highlights the insatiable appetite for sin. It's insatiable. They're, they've never had their full, they're never satisfied. They always want more and more, and more is never enough. They covet every woman they see. I mean, this is a, a uniquely kind of given over to sin type thing. Uh, notice fourth, they hunt unsteady souls. Now that word for entice that you see in verse 14, it comes from uh, the image of fishing or snaring, a kind of of hunting activity. And it came to be associated with moral temptation as well. If you look in James 1.14, it uses the same idea where our sinful desires lead us to sinful actions. But notice that these false teachers hunt unsteady or unstable souls, those who are not firmly grounded in biblical doctrine They are easily led astray. They are easily trapped. They are easily taken advantage of. Let me just ask you this morning. Do you know if you are unsteady or unstable? Do you know? What does it look like to be stable? Do you ever feel like you are sufficiently stable until Jesus comes back? I would say that we all are together in the process of becoming more stable. We need each other to grow in stability. Uh, I am grateful that we have people here who are gifted in teaching and more stable, and those who have walked with Christ for longer and are more stable, and those who are younger who are trying to get more stable. But all of us are trying to get more stable together. Are we ready? Are we ready for those who might hunt us? Hunt us in their teachings. Hunt us through the literature that they, that we read. Do you understand that when you are picking up a book, that there are people that maybe even unbeknownst to them are actually writing in ways that might not be healthy for your souls. Are we discerning in the kinds of things that we are allowing into our hearts? Are we careful about the people that are speaking to us about what God is like, about who Jesus is, about how we are to live and to make it to the end when Jesus comes back? I think here what Peter is saying is we need to, be, we need to make sure that we are discerning because there are those who are teaching things that are dangerous. So you can hope better amidst trials if you seek to follow Jesus. So seeking to obey Jesus in all things makes us more stable. If we want to be ready for those who might draw us away, we need to build up what? Endurance, strength, deep roots. And those things come with being faithful and enduring through trials, following Jesus when things get difficult, not giving up when things seem insurmountable. It means trusting Christ at all costs. When we do that, there's a strength that's built that is prepared more for the next challenge that comes. We need to be trained in endurance. Expect Jesus to ask you to do things, hear me, that are not natural to you. I don't think there's anybody in this room who would say that my spiritual experience has been that Jesus told me to do this and every time it was so easy. Exactly what I wanted. No, I think that what we would say is is that I thought it was hard and then I resisted and it got harder. And now I realize after so many years that it's harder than I knew, I'm stronger than I was. But I'm just recognizing that the the, the, the feel is real, right? Like it's hard. We need to build up endurance. You know, it it reminds me sometimes when we think about like following Jesus, we think about that hypothetical Catholic who gives up eating snails for Lent, right? Like you're supposed to give up something that's hard to give up and you're like, well, I wanna eat more snails. it is not hard not to eat snails. It's like automatic. Following Jesus is hard, right? It's like taking up a cross, not, not eating a snail. See, following Jesus means that we will need to be generous when we are prone to have greedy hearts. And Jesus will often call us to be generous when we are in a low moment, when we're not trusting him as much. We will need to learn to turn to Christ rather than alcohol to claim and calm our anxious hearts will need to love an imperfect church sacrificially and have imperfect pastors shepherd us as gifts from God. We will need to spend more time in God's Word and less time on Netflix. We'll have to learn to trust and obey. This is the way. This is the way. But notice they are also, in verse 14, greed experts. Now the word trained here, notice that while we need to be training in endurance, they are already training. They're training in greed. In fact, this word comes from gymnasium. It's where athletes would train to grow strong in something. Now notice here, it's their hearts, the hearts of these false teachers that have been going to the gym to train for the sport of greed. Now greed is a broad term that can mean the desire for money, more money, more money, more sexual pleasure, power, food, and so forth. But when coupled with greed in two, three, it, there's a good indication that, that money is at least in view here. They make disciples, these false teachers. And as they are making disciples, they are not chalking up people that are going to make it to heaven. They're chalking up profits. See, greed can look like spending too much or saving too much, Greed can look all kinds of ways. It's not always easily detected. In both cases, we can trust money to do something for us, whether we're saving a lot or spending a lot. Maybe we save a lot because it makes us feel safe. Maybe we spend a lot because it makes us feel attractive or powerful. But there is some kind of motivation that is causing them to put their confidence and trust in money, and it's affecting the way that they do ministry. It is a heart issue that is going on with the false teachers. But notice six, he calls them accursed children. Now, this means children of the curse. Uh, I take this to be a common Jewish way of describing the quality of a person. Judas was the son of destruction. That means that he was destined for destruction. These were children of the curse, meaning that they were under the curse. These false teachers are still under the curse. They are not truly part of the people of God who have the blessed hope of the resurrection life. They might look like they are on the rise today, but Peter says the lumberjack's coming. Peter warned in 2.2 above that many would follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth would be blasphemed. But notice what he does in verses 15 to 16. He points to the Old Testament prophet Balaam as a mascot for these false teachers. He says these false teachers have a mascot from the Old Testament named Balaam. By the way, Peter apparently, New Testament guy, Right? Love to preach from the Old Testament. I'm just going to keep pointing that out. But here he goes. Peter's allusion to Balaam. He says, Balaam's donkey could teach them something about the right way. They've been following the way of Balaam, but if they would have listened to the donkey, the donkey could have taught them about the right way. Now, Peter's allusion to Balaam here is linked by this repetition of that same phrase from verse 13, the wage of their wrongdoing. Notice here we see again that Balaam loves the wage of his wrongdoing. Now look there again with me at verses 15 to 16. Here's what he says. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, Peter is picking up here on a strange story from Numbers 22. If you go read that later today, Uh, you'll say, yeah, that's a strange story. But in this story, the Israelites are on the doorstep of the Moabites. They're about to take them over when the Moabite king tries to hire some prophet named Balaam, very enigmatic figure, and he's the son of Beor. And he wants to pay him to prophesy against Israel. He's like, hey, I'm going to pay you. He sent some guys to say, we're going to pay you. If you'll just prophesy a curse against Israel, then we will give you a ton of money. And Balaam seems to be game. He's like, I like money. Maybe that's what the Lord's saying today. And so he goes to God and God tells him not to curse his people. Balaam was like, man, I didn't see that coming. So Balak, the Moabite, or, or the um, Moabite king, he raises the price and says, I will give you anything that you ask. And so Balaam says, you know what? Maybe I need to go back to God and make sure I heard him right. And so he goes to God again. God allows him to go. But on his way, his donkey begins going crazy. He's uh, going off the path, which is literally the way of Balaam. And he's, he's literally pushing him up against a rock. He's terrified of this path. And in the moment, you see Balaam just getting so angry. And he's striking the donkey and striking him. But he keeps turning back. And eventually, when it gets so bad, the donkey opens his mouth and says, Why are you doing this? Now, that's a strange day when your donkey starts talking to you right? And the donkey is preaching to Balaam. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord in the story before the prophet Balaam did. See, the donkey sees this mighty, fierce angel, more powerful than him, right before him. And then the angel reveals himself to Balaam. And it makes it clear that he was in more danger than he knew. The angel says, if that donkey didn't turn back, I would have killed you where you stood. Now these false teachers here, they look like Balaam. They are less spiritual than the donkey. Less spiritual than the brute beast who did not turn back just like Balaam. They are both blind to spiritual things and they are also uncaring. of They love money. Now interestingly, Peter calls these false teachers, Balaam, the son not of Beor, as it says in Numbers 22, but of Bessar. Now, some have looked at that and said, oh, obviously Peter got it wrong. Or maybe this is how the Galileans pronounce the name. But it's more likely a translation of the Hebrew word for flesh, Basar. That makes sense in context, doesn't it? These are people that are not living according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. And he says, these false teachers are like Balaam, living according to the flesh, not according to the things of God. Balaam was not a son of the Spirit, but a son of the flesh, living for money of this world and not fearing God. He was blind to angels. No fear of them, though he was immediately in danger. See, Balaam, like the false prophets, had that loved gain from wrongdoing. And Peter said he was a madman not to see the spiritual danger he was in. Maybe you're trying to think about false teachers that fit this profile. Pastor of the largest church in the United States, Joel Osteen, he he doesn't preach on sin and he makes a lot of money doing it. Says that's not a big deal. I read my Bible, it says sin's a big deal. Or what about Bill Johnson of Bethel, who recently said pastors are not supposed to rebuke their people, but only to encourage them all day long. Same week, I was going through 1 Thessalonians 5, where he ends with basic Christian teaching. And he says, The pastors that you respect are those who teach you, but also those who rebuke you. And if they don't rebuke you, they're not doing your job. They don't deserve respect. There are lots of teachers that are not teaching God's word or according to God's word. Paul says, That we are to be a people who are constantly calling people to live according to God's word, correcting them when they are getting off the way and onto a wrong way. Who, what pastor will not love you enough to put you on the right path? But we should look at the profile and consider if we are living for pleasures in this life or the life to come, because notice these false teachers are leading many astray, So are we proud before God? That's a good question, I think, for all of us to ask this morning. Could it be that we've lost sight of the future that awaits us in heaven, so that we have settled for the pursuits of this earth? And maybe that was not like a conscious decision in your life. Maybe it wasn't that you sat down in your quiet time one day and said, you know, I just feel like I need to be more concerned about water bills, my job, making sure my kids get in the right school, than thinking about Jesus day in and day out. Maybe it's just that that's sort of the default way that you've drifted into. Maybe it's the friends that you keep. Maybe it's not being a part of a local church that's holding you accountable. Maybe it's not being a part of a community group that's constantly asking you where you're at with Christ. You know, sometimes we have indicators that maybe we're drifting. I I see this sometimes in my own heart. Sometimes I hear people say that our pastoral prayers are too long. And I was like, are they? Maybe they are. Like, I don't want too long prayers. And then I realized... Well, yeah the longest one is like five minutes five minutes does a five minute prayer feel too long to you what might that say about our desperate dependence on God in our prayer closets do we want shorter prayers do we, do we have a heart that says I wish we could just pray less do we feel like we don't need to seek God his face and his help that we can do it on our own We feel like we don't need to be physically present with the church because we've kind of gotten used to watching online, which uh, sometimes you've got to watch online. It's fine. We we love to be able to have people who can't make it watch online. But do you sense online that there's this longing to be with the flesh and blood people of God who are destined for heaven? See, God's people are not proud. We are called to be gentle and lowly. We struggle with pride, but... We come before the cross and humility lives in the shadow of the cross where Jesus died for sinners because there was no other way. Humility lives under the shadow of the cross of Christ. We live by grace and grace alone. There's nothing our hands can do to save us, yet God adopted us in Christ and we are no longer on death row destined for the wrath of God. Our future is better. See, pride seeks to raise us up above the angels. It seeks to tell us that we can do it. That we can make ourselves great, that we can create a future for ourselves that is not given to us by the Father. And yet, what Christ says is in your pride, you can seek to raise yourself above the angels, you will fall so short you don't even know it. But Christ came to bring us all the way up to the Father, all the way above the angels. I mean, if we lost sight of the, the brightness of our future, just consider this. A couple of verses that I want to leave you with that I hope sends you singing into the week. One, we shall judge the angels. Did you know that? First Corinthians 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 1-3 says this. Do you know that we are to judge the angels in the future? This is something Paul just kind of throws in there, like this is why you don't sue one another and why you deal with stuff in a local church in the context of church discipline. It's because what do those courts that are passing away have to do with God's people that last forever? Do you not know that one day you will judge the angels? That's why church members should not sue one another but take it to the church. And that's how high Paul views the local church. See, we shall judge angels whom Peter's false teachers of his day were thinking that they needed to raise themselves over. Jesus brings us higher. Second, Revelations 3.21, we shall sit with Jesus just as Jesus sat down with the Father. Jesus tells the saints, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. No earthly past, no earthly pleasure can compete with that, sitting with Jesus on his throne forever. Anything? Do you have anything? You got nothing. There's nothing that comes close to that. In other words, our authority will only be realized by virtue of our being in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then this isn't you. Conquering means faithfully enduring suffering until death or Jesus comes back. If that is us, We faithfully endure together, we shall reign with him, we shall sit with him. In other words, if the choice is more earthly pleasure or Jesus, what's the right choice? Jesus! Church, I mean, it's hard to get Jesus wrong, right? We may be hurt and humiliated in this life, but we shall reign with God. In other words, pride, self-sufficiency can't get us to where the angels are, but Jesus can. He can get us to the Father. Jesus gets us higher than our wildest dreams. Are you hearing me? There is no dream that you can create for yourself that takes you higher than what Christ has for you and where you are going. That theology, I believe, is the theology that helps Christians remain faithfully. I mean, when you look at these false teachers, don't you just want to, like, sort of like an ostrich pick your head up out of the stand and just look around and say, is there anything else here? There is. It's Jesus. Trusting that reality changes your life. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure with him, with Christ, we shall also reign with him. Now if you're here this morning non-Christian and you have not put your faith in Jesus and you've been living for this world because it's all that you've known that there is to live for, I want you to know there is so much more in Christ. Don't leave today before talking to me or another Christian about the hope that you have sure and steady in Christ, the future that you can have. There is a future for us who are the people of God, all of us in Christ. Don't leave without putting your faith in Christ. But if we want to be more earthly good. We as a people need to be more heavenly minded. Let's pray. Oh, this morning as we come before you, we praise you because you have sent your son. And Father, in sending him, you have sent him to deliver us from a, a wrath that we deserve. And oh, Father, the, the future that awaits us is brighter than we can imagine. You give us glimpses and, and echoes and hints of what is to come, Lord, but there's no way that you could give the fullness of it to finite minds who are trying to comprehend the infinite. And so, Lord, we pray that this day, as we go from this place, that you would give us hearts that are excited about the future that is to come, and we pray that that would shape the way that we live today. And Father, if there are those here who do not know you, who haven't gotten in on that deal, God, we pray that this morning they would put their faith in you, and they would today, for the first time, have a future and a hope. It's in the name of your Son that we do pray.